Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fact. I'm Glenn Falcon Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Ding, ding. Hello. <laughs> and freelance writing critic for Nehru. Hello. And joining us as a very special guest is the director of the Korean Film Festival in Australia, which is celebrating its 10th year this year. It is kicking off in Sydney tomorrow night at Denny Cinema's Opera Keys. David Park, the artistic director of the festival. David, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. So later in the program, we're going to be talking about Melbourne's National Film Festival. And on the podcast, um, we will be talking once upon a time in Hollywood spoilers. So you can listen to our regular review last week, but this will be a spoiler discussion, no holds barred. Officially the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino, not the tenth. I've heard that a lot. We'll get to hear Farad's take on it as well. Oh, God, okay. Yeah, sure. But that is later because we are talking all things coffee. Now, the festival is kicking off tomorrow. It is the tenth year. We're keen to hear about some of the films, but first of all, it's the tenth year. You must have pulled out some stops. Um, We're really happy with um, what we've been able to achieve with our lineup this year. So uh, 22 films in total, and Sydney is getting every single one of them. because our other cities don't usually have the full lineup, but we're happy to uh, have that here. Um, yeah, some really interesting films that will be going over a lot of the main genres that mm. is make that makes Korean cinema so popular. Yeah, so I'm uh, really interested to see the uh, audience reaction for these films. Mm. So the Korean Film Festival, um, some of these films are showing for the first time in Sydney and some of them are sort of a retrospective of films that have played already. So who are you trying to um, hopefully bring into these films with the Korean Film Festival? Yeah, so uh, 22 of the films are pretty much, I guess, a showcase of... Mm. I guess we're celebrating the films that have really made an impact in the industry in the past year. Mm. And... We're really excited to be working with Sydney Film Festival this year to be presenting a retrospective of uh, a Bong Joon-ho's films. Mm. Since I think it makes sense because he's taken home the Sydney Best Film Prize and uh, the Palm Door. He's definitely the number one most talked about director mm. in Korea, if not. I think world. Chris's heartbeat is just like increasing <laughs> by <laughs> the minute as you talk about it because. I can just see him blushing as you talk about Bong Joon-ho. It's nice to see him uh, hit this level of recognition. Right, so you've yeah. been um, obviously following his... Yeah, I've been following his career oh, since, right. um, I think, Memories of Murder. Mm. The host hadn't quite come out yet when I got into his stuff, so yeah, yeah it's been a while. <laughs> so we'll be pretty much screening um, ev- everything from fla- uh, Barking, bo- Barking Dogs, mm. Never Bite, uh, we'll have Memories of Murder, we'll have Mother, we'll have Host. Yeah, so it should be quite interesting. Yeah, they're, they're great films. Mm, yeah, and yeah. Parasite, no less. Um, it's probably the most discussed film in the show. It's my favorite film of the year. I do think it's the best film of 2019. And we were very lucky to have director Bonke. I know Chris spoke to him earlier in the year as well. And I'm very keen to hear your thoughts on Parasite. I mean, it's such a consequential and significant movie. And I'm so glad that audiences are going to get another opportunity to see it. Yeah, uh, I think it's only right that we programmed it for this year because obviously it's... Um, one of the biggest films. It did have a domestic release here in Australia and New Zealand, but ticket sales for that particular film are just through the roof. I think we'll definitely get another full house for that one, which is great to see. I feel like the film can go even further with its international rollout. Um, You never know if this is going to break through for Korea at the Oscars. 
Definitely. I mean, it's, it's a chance, I think. It's definitely one of those rare occasions where Australia gets to film before the US. And That's true. For once, the US fans are like, oh my God, this is what mm. it feels like to wait for a movie. But <laughs> it's a really interesting <laughs> film that seems to have united people. It seems like, you know, the highbrow, the, the, the less artsy critics... The general yeah. audiences, mm. everyone's mm. on board with it. Yeah, I went. I went with some of my friends who are hardcore Fast and Furious franchise fans. Yeah, and they were not SMI. disappointed. No, no, no. But they were like, they would never go to see an art house movie movie, if mm. you know what I mean, mm. right? Mm. But they were pleasantly surprised by the genre uptake of this movie, and they were like, no, this is entertaining, and they were kind of surprised by how entertained they were. And I'm like, no, no, you know, sometimes I watch good movies, so this is one of them. No, that was a really good, uh, interesting observation, guys. Because yeah, a lot of my friends who would never go in to see these yeah. films were like saying, "What is Parasite? What is Parasite? What is this <laughs> film that <laughs> everyone is talking about? We have to go into the cinemas to see this thing." And yeah, I mean, the film racked up to become the number one sold uh, filled in Korean film mm. in Australia and New Zealand. So yeah, it's a huge testament to that. Mm. It's a, a really interesting, pre you know, universal kind of premise. I think that it, a lot of people can relate to it. Mm. Now, n another film I'm keen to talk about, which is, uh, I think, premiere for the festival, is *The Odd Family*. Now, there's a lot of, of action-oriented films, but this one screening early in the festival, and it's one I'm particularly keen for. I think it's screening Friday night. Yes, Friday night. So we've kind of had our own in-house uh, little idea to screen our zombie films on that one night. So we're screening The Odd Family first and then Rampant, which is another take on, a on the zom zombie genre. Uh, so Odd Family is a really interesting film, I think, because it's very rare for a zombie film to be set in Korea to be... Well, obviously, uh, Train to Busan was a very big example of a zombie film, but that was probably one or two of a myriad of Korean films so you can't say that there's been a lot but uh, it's really interesting how we've already been able to uh, um, try and play on the genre to the extent that we got The Odd Family and um, for those that uh, don't know The Odd Family is set in a very hillbilly rural Korean town and this family stumbles upon a zombie and they realize that once the people are bitten by this particular zombie, they age in reverse. So it's kind of like a youth elixir. So the bite becomes a youth elixir for these guys. And they end up selling the zombie's bite to the people in the town. Now, what happens later is, as with all good fashion zombie films, Everyone that's been bitten suffers the after effects of the infection. They all turn into zombies and it's just this one family trying to, you know, set everything right in this uh in this really comedic take on the zombie genre. We see a lot of zombie films and some of them can be quite generic, quite straightforward. It's nice to see that they're actually <coughs> really don't die. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. A perfect example. And it's nice to see that there is a novel novel approaches to these issues. I mean, zombies films have always been about social issues and social anxiety, and this seems to feed very squarely into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it's uh, a film that takes itself very lightly, kind of in the vein of uh, Zombieland or Shaun of the Dead. And, I mean, for Korea to kind of try that so early into the whole zombie thing, 
um, I think it's it was really interesting to see the industry do that. Uh, I'm very intrigued by the Hong Sang Soo that you're screening, Hotel by the River. Yes. Because I guess Hong Sang Soo is the favorite of, uh, I guess, you know, like Bong. Uh, I guess film so. festival audiences yeah, yes. and no one else. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see no, movies I at a film <laughs> festival about people at film festivals, <laughs> Hong Sang Soo is your man. <laughs> I do not want to say that, but uh, I do think Hong Sang Soo and Kim Min Hee is a very good and a very interesting director-actor collaboration, which, mm. is, you know, I think they've done some amazing work together. And off screen and on screen. <laughs> Sorry, but uh, I think yeah, it's interesting to see just the pace of his output is really cool and clever. So, you know, his ability to script the screenplay. So it's going to be interesting because I think I got into Korean cinema through Hong Sang Soo's work. So oh, okay. Yeah, so it's uh, it's very interesting to see w what people can expect from his latest. Um, I think he's he's such an interesting director, isn't he? Mm. And I would just love to be where he is right now, um, just in terms of his creativity and what he's been able to achieve. You know, he has his own aesthetic, which doesn't really cost much budget-wise, and he's able to freely express anything. And he has a huge following, and it resonates people in a in a way. And um, yeah, I'll just love to have that platform if I was to direct a film um, I think that's the dream level that you kind of get to um, he's just a friend of mine um, from Korea made the comment that his movies and his life are just inseparable <laughs> he's just constantly expressing <laughs> yeah. his current situations yeah. through film exactly what, what, imagine having that kind of platform as you say yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly there, there is a director searching for meaning in almost all his films yeah. <laughs> like yeah, yeah why not so yeah, I mean, you could kind of say, oh, he's just sitting on the bench and he's just thinking and then he'd just go, hey, this is a great idea mm. of me having a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't I invest in a film crew and just shoot this? Yeah. And people come in and watch it that's and right. thoroughly enjoy it, yeah. I, myself included. Yeah. Living his best life right now. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's that's exactly what I'm, yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah. The other one, the other film I wanted to talk about, which actually I saw it back in the Sydney Film Festival, is Spy Gone North, which I think a lot of people missed out during the festival run, but I really liked it, and I think it's really gritty, you know, good uh, mystery kind of noir style, and very grounded, very realistic, once again using the Korean setting really well, which I think, uh, let's expand upon that, because I think a lot of people missed out when the festival run happened. Yeah, and uh, that was actually, I think, uh, playing on several cinemas had picked that up, screen as well I think it's always a little iffy when we get to that period drama espionage especially <laughs> when you have North Korea involved because you can't separate politics from film and art in that genre but I think it's been done really well and Hwang Jong-min um, I mean I, well, I watch anything that he's in I mean He's just a seal of approval right there. I think yeah, he's very good at selecting the scripts that he wants to work with. And I think uh, this film is a very good testament to his ability to pick and hmm, analyze. Yeah, I was very surprised how under the radar it kind of happened. And so I'm really keen that people do check it out for now that it's getting a proper rerun, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's done some festival runs, but it's interesting how it just didn't... 
yeah, pick up. Yeah, I heard it about it when it was um, showing out of competition at the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that they, in recent years, seem to have a trend of showing a dark Korean genre movie every year. So we had The Spy Gone North, but also, um, I think it was last year, and it's in your schedule as well, uh, The Gangster, The Cop, The Devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That screened as a midnight screening. Right. I remember. And we've got that program for this year as well. Yeah. I think that's a terrific, terrific genre film. The premise is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's. Do you want to tell us about it? Oh. Um, so basically, it's about a cop and a gangster who has to work together to find a serial killer. And, uh, you know, just right there, you've got the whole dynamics of these people from polar opposite sides of the moral scale working together to find someone that is extremely outside the bounds of the moral scale. So mm. uh, it's very interesting in that already. But, um, uh, yeah, great. Mm. And of changing tack quite a bit, actually, I was reading the program and I'll be seeing this in the coming week, the film The Odd Couple Comedy, in a sense, um, where two individuals from uh, quite different backgrounds come together to support each other and then someone comes to mix, like the mother of one of the main characters, which um, leads to potentially upending their situation. Yeah, so uh, Inseparable Bros uh, is going to be a... I guess it's one of the... It definitely falls in the genre which a lot of Korean fans like. The bright, colorful, uh, quirky, funny. This is where um, a lot of the films that initially brought Korean cinema to the international audience, for the mainstream international audience, like My Sassy Girl, um, fall in under. And I think Inseparable Bros is a really good example of that. But this is a bromance film. Um, So two guys who are not related by blood are brought together in a facility um, for uh, people with disability. And so one of the members, one of the characters is, I guess, he's... How do I put it nicely? Um, (laughs) (laughs) He's he's not all there in the the, the head. Um, uh, And... But he's physically very gifted and very strong, whereas the other one is physically disabled from neck down, but his mind is perfect and uh, he's very clever. So he acts as the brains. The other character, the brother, acts as the brawn. And it's a very interesting dynamic there already. And uh, I guess the film starts to kick off into motion and when the complication arises of uh, someone who pretends to be or who comes out uh, saying that she is the mother of uh, one of the characters and yeah it definitely delves into the issue of what is family is blood thicker than water or is is can there be more to that Kind of like us guys, right? Inseparable bros. A, 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 A. We should t- we, we talk about the... Remember, just as the name of the show, maybe this could be a m- missed opportunity here. Inseparable yeah. bros. Inseparable bros, yeah. Exactly. Hang loose, guys. Hang loose. Yeah. Um, one of... Okay, it's not quite the same, but A... Um, <laughs> segway. Go for that segue, Chris. Yeah, I, I tried to... Commit to, to this now. <laughs> um, I was going to say that 
uh, extreme job. It was one of those sort of bright, accessible yes. movies, mm. but I wouldn't quite put it in the My Sassy Girl category. I didn't see this one, but a friend uh, told me it was it was great um, earlier this year who isn't normally into Korean films especially. So I think it, it's one that also has big crossover potential. Yeah, Extreme Job. Ooh, it was probably one of the biggest films of the year. Yeah, I noticed. I kept hearing about it and it was going on for a while at the cinemas. It was Extreme. huge. Mm. It was huge. Uh, I guess that's partly, partly... I don't want to take any credit away from the film itself, but it was partly owing to the fact that it didn't really have a big competitor when it rolled out right. in domestic cinemas. But that being said, I mean, um, director Lee Byung-hun, it's, I think it's third or fourth film, but he's really been able to flourish into the genre that he's been cultivating for the past, past his past films. I mean, I've seen his past films. We've actually programmed a few in our uh, festival a few years back but he's definitely flourished into that comedic genre which mm. actually has a nice intense plot and can hold itself together until the end and I think that's where Extreme Job really excelled because it does end on a very big big um, big well, what's the word that I'm searching for um, Extreme Reveal Climax <laughs> <laughs> I like how you use the word extreme <laughs> yeah uh, mm. th th those were our films, but like, is there a film that yeah, honestly that has it may just have the best premise of the year? I mean, Extreme Unknown Saint was pretty good, but Extreme Job, it's yeah, it, 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 it's, police, it's a great police idea. staking out a drug operation mm -hmm. accidentally create a, a massively successful fast food business. Yeah, <laughs> why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they uh, set up a uh, fried chicken shop, and you know, Korea's been quite on the map for their Korean fried chicken. And these guys, one of the one of the constables, has this homemade recipe that they want to try out. It becomes a massive hit. So these guys are meant to be, you know, obviously watching yeah. for these drug lords that are opposite the street. But now they have a dilemma of this shop going so well. I get it. I get it. Like, brings it's two of my favorite things as well. I mean, fried chicken <laughs> and drugs. So I guess you know, brings two of my greatest loves together. Uh, I would love to see this movie. I think we're we seeing this movie together. <laughs> okay. It's from Fight Club Adding. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely would love to have you guys. Yeah, join us for the screening. And oh, it's it's a blast. I mean, it's just one of those films where you can just watch and just let everything that's on your mind just kind of float away and just yeah, laugh. Too many end. depressing movies, around, <laughs> to be honest. And it's, it's good to just see a movie and just not think about something. Mm. Yeah. But are there any other films that you potentially would recommend and say that you know, we might have missed out, but one of your favorites in the program that we kind of haven't touched upon. Uh, I guess, you know, kind of, they're all my babies <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, but I am very passionate about our opening film, um, A Resistance. So 2019 marks two big anniversaries. So it's the 100th anniversary of the, of Korean cinema. So our first films were produced since 1919. Um, so we had six films produced then. Uh, fast forward 100 years, we're projected to have about 600 domestic releases. So mm. yeah, it's a very good statistic. Um, the other anniversary is 100 years of the provisional government. So this is, this is huge for our country. So we've had our first government 100 years ago. And one of the key figures in the 
activists who you know helped make this happen is the lead in the film of A Resistance, which is our opening film this year. Um, so Yu Guan Sun, she was 17 years old when she was uh, put into a Japanese colonial uh, uh, prison, and she died there. But that story just resonated so hugely with um, the Korean people and. Uh, I think the choice was, you know, I'm getting a few people and some opinions saying, hey, is this a bit risk? <laughs> it's a bit political, but um, just felt that it was the perfect film to just open the year on. Mm. There are a lot of films I've noticed in the program this year that are looking at new angles on the time of the Japanese occupation. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a mini theme through the program. Yeah, I mean, we we don't hate Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to put that out there. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think it's just a very important part of our history. Mm. And it helped develop us. It helped put us, give us a lot of scope on where we needed to be. I mean, it shaped us to the country we are now. So mm. I think it's just only important for a country to look back on mm. those things and yeah, reflect. Indeed, very much so. If and I can get political, especially if there's opposition to those stories being remembered and being told. You yes. would hope not. You would hope I mean, sincerely not, but that's. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I mean, oh, I mean, Chris, I mean, it's a lot of people don't know that there are oppositions to the story, but mm. yeah, it's alarming to see how much there is. And I guess that's why a lot of the filmmakers have been kind of getting busy trying to it, it makes sense it's like w it's amazing the number you mentioned before Korea having like uh, 600 domestic releases a year that's huge that's a really healthy cinema landscape and then within there I guess it's like okay Korea really has its own national cinema to be proud of what sort mm -hmm. of stories is it important for Korea to tell right now yeah yeah and I think you know with the whole uh Japan and Korea trade war going on right mm. now. I think culture is a very soft and nice way to say, "Hey guys, like yeah. let's sort this out, you know, let's talk over this." And it's a nice diplomatic way to just have our message out there, you yeah. know, instead of going to drastic measures like, "Oh, let's boycott yeah. every single Japanese product." Cuz I think that's that does go a little extreme but mm. film is just on the right margin you know you have your freedom of speech you have your freedom of expression and yeah we'll go from there yeah fair enough mm. i think it, it makes it makes a lot of sense yeah. thank you for thank you for raising that i mean we've been doing the show but we never actually talked properly about film as a form of expression a broader political expression and self-actualization and it's so significant so um, i do hope people do seek out these films and do go to the festival which is starting tomorrow night and running through to the 31st and then new york keys mm -hmm. for those who want to go see one or more or many of these movies how do we go how do we get there yeah, uh, so www.coffia.com.au. So that's an abbreviation of our film festival. So K O F I A.com.au. That's our website. Um, all our venues, our schedule, our film lineup, everything's there. You can book online or you can book at our venue. Um, we're at, yeah, as you mentioned, Dendy Opera Keys this year for Sydney. So, yeah, uh, socials, we've got Facebook. We're on Instagram, so Korean Film Festival in Australia, and hopefully it pops up, hopefully. <laughs> Crossing my fingers, yeah. Hmm. 
Well, come join us to celebrate birth- 10th birthday. It's a big year. And the 100th birthday of Korean cinema. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And our birthdays on Film Fight Club as well, actually. Yeah, yeah. it's a birthday week. Happy birthday to both Virat and Chris for the coming week. Uh, wow. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's all in one time. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday, Virat. <laughs> Happy birthday, Chris. Happy birthday, guys. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, and we'll be back right after this, talking all things Melbourne International Film Festival. Stay tuned. To SER wishes to acknowledge the custodians of the land from which we broadcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wadamatagal clan of the Darug Nation, and their elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge and respect their continuing culture and the contribution they make to the life of this city and this region. This September, brace yourself as Sydney Fringe turns 10. Celebrating with over 350 shows across 60 venues over 30 days. Offering work from 11 different genres, including theatre, comedy, music, dance, circus, experiential events, and much more. This year's program is live and ready to go, so grab your tickets at sydneyfringe.com. 2SER is a media partner of Sydney Fringe. Sydney Latin American Film Festival is coming soon. Our city's most fun and vibrant celebration of independent cinema. Famous for their opening and closing night fiestas and Q&A sessions, you'll discover more than just your new favourite movies. Running from September 4th to 21st at Dendi Opera Keys, Addison Road Picture House and now also at Kazula Powerhouse. For tickets and more information, head to slaff.org.au. 2SER is a media partner of Sydney Latin American Film Festival. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. I can vouch for that ad in that um, I've been to the Southern Land American Film Festival every past several years, and they do have the best opening night parties. The Irish Film Festival give them a run for their money, but the slap is pretty great. Yeah, they're quite slapping with their parties. And they <laughs> slap hard with a vengeance. <laughs> and, yes, they do. And Giselle, the director of the festival, will be on next week to chat all things in Latin American Film Festival and parties and Anderson Picture House, which they're making excellent use of, a beautiful and very underused yeah. venue. I'd like to point out I don't go to parties unless it's a slap party. So, yeah, there you go. And we will be there September 4th. Book your tickets. So, yep. and also at Dendy Opera Keys, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at least, least there'll be night film. So, it's a happening place in town. Uh, the other happening place in town, well, the town we were just in, I literally got off a plane and came straight here, Is was the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yeah, my one true love. It wrapped after 18 glorious days of film, some of the best stuff from Sydney, some new stuff, some premieres, some great, some all right, and some truly terrible. And we're going to be, Virat and I visited the lovely city of Melbourne and all its coffee. I've had a lot of coffee and wired. And Virat is going <laughs> to talk about, first of all, about his uh, flicks that he caught at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. Yes. So I did a very interesting double bill. I did The Art of Self-Defense, which is the new Jesse Eisenberg movie where Jesse Eisenberg is playing, well, Jesse Eisenberg Which again. is screening at the Sydney Underground Film Festival on September 14, the Saturday evening. And, and tickets are available. And uh, the Takashi Miike film, uh, First, First love, love, which is also screening at the Sydney Underground Film Festival. I wish I could tell you the time it was. Oh, no, I can. Give me one second. Continue, Virat. I'll just grab my yeah, booklet. Yeah, and this was a very interesting double build. And thankfully, Saf have picked up both the films. And it is a very exciting uh, double build for me. It was Friday night. And I was like, you know, what the hell? I'm going to do it. They're both really interesting, fun films for very different reasons. Firstly, The Art of Self-Defense, uh, which is a very, very dumb film. 
And I say that with as much love as possible because the film is really dumb, but it's so clear in the first five minutes exactly how dumb the film is that for the rest of the runtime, you kind of just enjoy it for how dumb it is because the premise is so dumb, <laughs> but it's so funny that you're just like, okay, there is no way in hell anyone can take Jesse Eisenberg seriously as someone who is an expert in karate. I just want to point out that this film has Alessandra Duvall, who played David in um, Disobedience, and also played uh, cast the Pollux Troy, sorry, Pollux Troy in Face Off. This guy has incredible range, and he was in Jurassic World 3, underrated movie. Yes. Uh, this, this film is one of my favorite gags. Jurassic Park 3? Oh my God, I did it again. <laughs> Jurassic Park 3. Excuse me, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. The Art of Self Defense is one of my favorite gags about belts. <laughs> Better than John Wick 3? <laughs> yes. Where, uh, the, the characters, uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character basically, you know, <laughs> brings a whole load of belts for people to wear casually outside of their karate school. So, Instead of bringing, you know, because, you know, as in karate, you have, you know, different colors of belts to propagate your level of expertise. So he instead brings people black belts so that, you know, people can essentially wear them casually outside. We're going to be talking more about the art of self-defense in the other Melbourne National Film Festival films. so dumb. On the podcast, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. If you're listening to the podcast, just keep listening. Coffee at .com.au. So that's K-O-F-F-I-A.com.au. Um, the festival's going to be playing at Dendy Opera Keys from tomorrow through to the 31st of August. Do check it out. We will be there. Come say hi. And we'll also be talking once upon a time in Hollywood. Spoilers in the podcast. Full and spoilers discussion. Regular reviews last week, but... We're going full blown into it. This has been Glenn Falcons and Chris Evans of Verat Nehru. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Good night. Bye. And we're back on the Film Fight Club podcast, looking at all things Melbourne International Film Festival. And Verat was teaching us some self defense. Yes. Okay. The art of self defense and how exactly dumb it is. So, yeah, we're talking about black belts. So, J.C. Eisenberg essentially is playing a character who's, like all J.C. Eisenberg characters, quite neurotic, uh, basically needs to enroll himself into a self-defense class to... I think Mark Zuckerberg is bodyguards, but sure. Yes. Or essentially to kind of feel more masculine. And in a way, the social commentary in this movie about uh, what masculinity means and how do you want to like become more macho and you know learning self-defense kind of thing could be interesting, but it's so dumb that it's like, you know... Like, after the first five minutes, you just can't take it seriously and that's exactly the tone the movie's going for except if that irritates you which i i can see how it can divide people because the movie is so dumb like it's so dumb it's kind of like swiss army man dumb but like you we'll, know we'll get, we'll get fired um <laughs> be, sorry the best film in 2016 what we'll but, get into swiss army man later when we talk but, about the death of dick long you know but but the thing is i kind of got into it and it's definitely better than the other uh jesse eisenberg imogen poots movie which is playing at myth which is vivarium which was just flat out terrible. It's oh, I didn't realize you saw it. Yeah, I saw, I saw that too because I was like, you know, I'm thinking about so, So that movie is just terrible and that movie has got nothing going for it. Thankfully, this movie is at least funny and dumb, which are two things I can get behind. Uh, that movie is just dumb. So, you know, you know, if you're going for a dumb movie, at least be self-aware about your dumbness and at least, you know, play on that. Uh, which moves me on to Takashi Miike and First Love. Uh, Mike is I, I'm so enamored by the fact that he's now entered the zone like 
Blade of the Immortal, I saw that, and like there's some visuals which is still imprinted in my in my brain about how funnily self-indulgent that movie is. And now Mika's just doing that again with First Love, where he's playing on a lot of the gangster tropes that you know he's basically inverted in all his movies, like hundred plus now. And uh, so this movie is essentially about a boxer who finds out that he's terminally ill, uh, and he realizes that he's lost motivation to do anything in life, but eventually certain things happen and he crosses paths with a young girl who is in need of protection, so he makes it his mission to protect her as one of the last acts he would do before he would die. Uh, I know this sounds like a pretty dramatic pre- uh, premise, but it's not. It's just played for laughs throughout the entire film. And a lot of the Takashi Miike's sort of stylistic style in this movie is very much driven from comic book culture but quite uh, instead of making it comic booky it's mostly actually there are scenes that like pivot into right right out of the comic book Mm -hmm. so you kind of see a lot of those scenes drawn out and then like emerging in real life kind of like Scott Pilgrim and like Edgar Wright style so Mm -hmm. it was interesting seeing Mika go into that zone in territory being flat out making into a proper comic book kind of story he's a really experimental director i think um always trying out different things and and it's interesting also with the yakuza and the gang warters in what this movie is playing up with this movie has some hilarious scenes there is a one-armed gangster who's literally basically named the one-armed gangster one-armed wang is what he's called Precisely because he's got one arm, so like it's it's that level of like superficially dumb, but it, it, it's it's bleeding fun. gums Murphy. Why is he called that? <laughs> I know, but it, it's fun because it's interesting in the sense how this movie plays up uh, the gang war uh, sort of you know trope in a very comedic sense. The kind of usually cliched played for dramatic tension scenes of you know the shootout between two gangs, which happens in these kind of movies is one of the highlights of the movie because exactly how much of a comedy of errors that scene is uh in in that scene the characters kind of see each other and then go completely over the top dramatic and trying to kill each other except they can't do it so it's drawn out like a buster keaton style comedic parable so it was interesting to see that kind of physical comedy being played out which you don't get to see in a lot of american cinema anymore so Mika is really inventive in how it uses actual physical gags right. peppered throughout the film. So I would definitely recommend. This was a great double bill if you're looking for plain, dumb fun. So at Suff, I think it's exactly the kind of film Suff would like go for. And I'm excited. The like, Suff crowd really love it. I think this was a great double bill. Cool. Yes, you can catch the Suff Film Festival. It's the Underground Film Festival, the 13th one at the Marrickville Factory Theatre from September 12th to 15th. Um, I'm not lying when I say I will literally be there the entire weekend, except yeah. when I'm popping out to see SF3. But yeah, it's it's a they it's my a favorite four days. Party, right? The serial party, if I'm not um, they're not doing the serial party this year, sadly, um, which is the ser- su- late morning, so early morning and late night breakfast a, a cartoon party. They are having an opening party on the Thursday night and a closing which with the Beach Bum Beach Bum theme, the new Matthew Conaghy film, and the closing night party is tied with the Lodge, the new Riley Coe film. But you know, you might just walk out because you know it might be. 
the vampire, Tokyo Vampire Hotel. A- again. It might be a CM Soto movie, and he might just not want to stay for it. But there's none of those Who films, knows? so yeah. it's not going happen. And The Art of Self-Defense is playing, so... I, just uh, I don't know, The Art of Walking Out of the Cinema is really your scene. This is a... Well, <laughs> technically the film hadn't started, so I didn't leave. I've never walked out of a movie to this day. Um, I, sure. I know people did it at Melbourne's National Film Festival. The cinema, walked right out. I saw I something saw else. <laughs> I saw another movie about a very sensitive one about a man who um, was talking about his experience being visited by aliens and the drawings he would draw on the art he created, which was quite I don't think that's stunning. a sufficient defense, but I'll give it, give it to oh, you. Oh, you're on fire with your <laughs> September-themed film festival puns. Just, just, yeah, I'm, not bad, not bad. So we'll see how we can do with some of the ones, the films I'm about to talk about. Okay. But yeah, you also saw some of my films, so yeah, let, let's just uh, miff them out. Yeah, I saw 10. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm going to talk are about you, some of the highlights. some of the lowlights? Oh, you uh, beat me to it. Oh. I was just <laughs> going to the microphone one. just then. Oh, I was no. like, oh, just this obvious. But that's the, that's the one patently obvious one. Otherwise, it's I was miffed. The, yeah, yeah. Th- there Got were, miffed in Melbourne. I was. Yeah. We are little zombies, a hidden city. Um, some I wouldn't necessarily run seeking out. Uh, one is a uh, two-hour film about kids who lose their family in a the worst strawberry aficionados tour ever. Alice and former J-pop Alice band, was of course. Okay, from what I heard, and, I, I didn't you see, to Alice. see Alice. So. I wanted to, but I missed the timing. Didn't work out, unfortunately. What I did see, and I'll bring it up first because it has come up so far. It's the death of Dick Long, which is from Daniel <laughs> Schneider, one of the directors of Sami Man. It's a new film from A24. It has its world pre- sorry, national premiere at the Melbourne Film Festival, and it is one that defies stratification in terms of genre. It is about the disappearance of the titular Dick Long, Dick Long, and obviously the two main characters, <laughs> ostensibly his two best friends, are clearly no more than they're letting on. <coughs> and the cops and um, the respective partners of the three main male characters uh, wonder what is going on here. Look, whether you enjoy this or not is really going to come down to your thoughts on a twist. The twist has the, well, more of a revelation, has the rare impact of appearing to upend tone and genre even when it doesn't it's very well the groundwork's very well laid it makes a lot of sense i like twist um it will turn a lot of people off um nash and moodley i remember uh, mentioned to us when we a couple of Simon a while ago and that when he saw it at the Cannes film festival a lot of people walked out the ones who didn't walk out stayed and cheered i think it's going to be this a pretty similar divide down people who who either detest and dislike the death of dick long or like myself who I actually, I wish I could say like nearly as much as Osama Man, but the fact is it had the frustrating, um, what's the terrible Iron Fist series where you have three main male characters who are front and center, but to, in a, to a degree, but are the least interesting characters, least interesting arc, whereas the three main female characters are performing much better actors and are much more interesting characters with better arcs, but they unfortunately take uh, are on the, more on the sidelines of this. And I wish that hadn't been the case because um, the performers, those performers therein were very, very good. That's part of the irony, right? Having stronger female characters in a movie called Dick Long. Oh, the death of Dick Long. Well, um, it is the death of Dick Long because the female characters are the ones that are interesting. Yeah. Um, right. So, yeah. No comment. I don't want to say to that. No comment from me on Swiss Army Man. I know we're we're on a, a schedule today, and yes. I, I don't <laughs> want to open those floodgates. It will overtake Parasite as the most discussed film in the show. I guarantee it if we ever come most to discussing it. We're, we're glad to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. We should have a proper fight about Swiss Army Man one day. With pleasure. With with absolute pleasure. <laughs> pleasure is not um, my word for it, but it's okay. The next film we want to talk about is Hello, the Daniel so Radcliffe. bad. 
so brilliant. So it's a masterpiece. So it really oh is without exaggeration. Oh my god. <laughs> so <laughs> should, 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 should I jump into something else okay, now? We're getting into Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's get um, to the farewell. Let's All get right. to the farewell. The farewell is the new film from Lulu Wang. It was the closing night film at the Melbourne International Film Festival, and she came out for the screening, the premiere, and the Q and A. It is starring Aquafina of Ocean's Eight and Crazy Rich Asians fame, and it is about. Wait, a, is, it, I it, is it Aquafina? Aquafina. Yeah. What did I say? You said Aquafina. Aqua, it's funny. Aquafina is how it, I read it when yeah. she popped on this the scene. Then recently I noticed that it was actually Aquafina. Excuse me yeah. for this pronunciation. No, but but, it, but there's a phenomenon to it because I've seen other people misspelling it on the internet as Aquafina. I think there's just something awkward about the Aquafina, whereas yeah. Aqua looks like... Yeah. Like, oh, I get it's water. Maybe, maybe it's a phonetic pun, and that's why she... Anyway. Yeah. No, I think it's just a name. So, Aquafina. I think we're just not used to seeing so many W's in a word. A-W-K-W. Yes. Not the... Yeah, very much the case. So, um, Aquafina <laughs> is the star of this. She plays a character who finds out that her... Uh, of American-Chinese background, living in New York, who finds out that her beloved grandmother in, in China, where a lot of her extended family live, is dying, but her family made the decision, which, um, as as elicited on in the film, is considered very culturally acceptable in China, not to, at least in parts of China, not to tell the grandmother and let her live her at her final respective final months um, in peace without the knowledge that her death is imminent. So they all fly over, but uh, they're not. She's said you can't tell your grandmother <coughs> anything about this and the, the te- it's a very good pre- setup and the tension is obviously will someone or the Aquafina character Billy um, tell um, the, the grandmother of what is happening um, this was the best film I caught at the festival um, when Lulu Wang had did the Q&A it was a testament to its quality that so many people raised their similar experiences within their own families. Um, also, um, in the context of the conversation, um, two films that premiered this in the past year, Crazy Rich Ages, Always Be Maybe, came up. Um, I got the impression that uh, Lulu Wang was essentially crazy with these films being lumped into that same category. Certainly, both of those films discuss the cultural divide between, um, uh, in this, well, in some, in Asians living in Asian countries and Asian Americans. And this film, I think, elucidated them on especially well. Um, there is an exceptional scene involving the uncle crying, which is not just hilarious, but the very definition of pathos. One of the better film scenes, I've, comedy scenes I've seen in film this year. Um, on the matter of the ending, I'm not going to. We'll be to seeing this movie in a few weeks, mate. Yes, yes. Uh, we we'll will be, be talking about it in the show. Well, um, I hope so. Yeah, it's a major release of the let's year. Let's not farewell it. We're not, we're not going to farewell, but uh, as I, I will wrap up the farewell. But the last point is simply that the ending. It suggests a number of ways the film can go. It really upends its expectations. It's a superb ending, effectively and exceptionally scripted and brought to life by a few um, excellent performers, including the uh, actress who played the grandmother. And also, you should look up the background to this film and the story of its productions as, if not more interesting, and the inspiration thereof, too. It's as, if not more interesting than the film itself. Now, let's talk about the film that you really want to talk about, Ren, because I know this was not the film you really wanted to talk about. There's another film which you may have hinted <laughs> That you actually do want to talk about, uh, which you haven't talked about yet. We're gonna I ta- wonder which one it could be. Oh, is it Kursk? We're going to talk about that film in just one minute, but I do want to touch on Kursk because this was out of the conversation got a little bit longer because I'm so excited about that one. But Kursk mm-hmm. is the new film with um, Dyer Schoenhart's Colin Firth, Lace to Do. Kursk indeed. 
and Max von Sydow playing this Putin stand-in, much like Matthias Schoharts himself played a Putin stand-in in Red Sparrow. It is about the 2000 submarine Kursk, Kursk submarine disaster. And uh, the film, it actually wasn't that great. Uh, uh, when you have so much material to draw from, um, unfortunately... That is, that is my favourite review of yours. Well, what are we expecting to say? It's brilliant. No, you have all, you have all these... Wasn't that great. You have all these Scandinavian people playing... And Russians. I know, but you're, you're offhand about like oh, French. No, it wasn't that great. It wasn't that great. Look, there's so much material to draw from here, <laughs> but they they embellish events and thereby turn into very dram- traditional dramatic thriller territory. Um, the politicking of what was going on between the fleets and between the respective governments at the time amid some uh, continuous Cold War era mistrust. It was incredibly interesting. However, that was only suddenly explored in the third act, and it should have been the basis of the film. Having said that, there was one excellent scene, long shots of the order of the day, like holding a camera on someone for 10, 15 minutes or more. Oh, I was thinking and suddenly about the Charlie Theron, Seth Rogen movie, which is infinitely better, called Long Shots. But anyway. And what? And there's one that takes place underwater as they go through the um, tunnels of the submarine, and that was excellent. Otherwise, uh, it could very well not be as good as Long Shot. I haven't seen Long Shot. It's wonderful. The last film I want to discuss from the Urban International Film Festival is one we will be discussing in coming weeks and everyone else has had a chance to see it and which I can't wait to be in cinemas. And it's this Earth Nightingale, the best Australian film of the year. And it is Take called it Little Monsters. Oh my God. This came out of the radar and it is just, I adore this movie. It stars Lupita Nyong'o in the best monster movie she's made this year. Much better than us. As a kindergarten, kindergarten teacher, Miss Carolyn, who is the kindergarten teacher to um, nephew of our main character, played by Alexander England, who's uh, down in his out, living in his sister's couch, but has a crush on Miss Carolyn and wants to impress her, takes the kids down on the field trip, and of course, zombie apocalypse ensues from that came out of the US military base next door in the Australian suburbs. Um, that may seem strange and ridiculous, but this film was operating at a lightly ironic tone, which never exceeds level of believability or internal logic. Kind and therefore, always happens when you have a crush on your teacher, right? You know, you know, eventually end up in a zombie apocalypse. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I. I. hope. I hope not. I, I sincerely hope not. Serves you right to have a crash, eh? And this movie, it never exceeds those bounds of like. <laughs> I believe. I believe someone have a crush on their. Um, it's believable that someone have a crush on like their nephew's prime uh, primary school or kindergarten teacher. Uh, elements of this are not believable otherwise but they establish a level of believability and logic and never exceed that and to that end there's a surprising it's surprisingly tightly scripted there's a lot that goes on in this movie it's very tightly packed and um well as good as Lupita Nyong'o is she's the standard of the film she has some wonderful one-liners Josh Gad as Teddy McGiggles this crusty the clown-esque um jaded children's entertainer who has to laugh and be happy with children all the time as soon as he's really as, well. I, I, I'm only saying good things about it the only loud the only thing I didn't like about it Josh Gad to like crusty McLeodface um, Crusty the Clown is one of the most endearing characters of modern television and Josh Gad is hilarious and it's my favorite performance of he since the Book of Mormon and um, while I don't think the lead, Alexander England, is up to the level of Nyong'o or Gad, um, there's a lot of hilarious uh, moments therein. I can't, and you know what? It's actually filmed in Sydney. It's filmed down the road. So oh, I'm going to wow. go to the, have a picnic at the local ground there. Um, two final things in this film. One, um, oh, oh, so it has some excellent, for any Taylor Swift fans out there, lovers coming out in two days. Um, it, there's, a, there's a lot of... You, you'll enjoy this movie. Um, two this is the real reason why you like this movie. No, no it's a small element thereof, but it is idiosyncratic okay. to my taste. I'm not going to lie. Um, two things about this film that are really good on a, a light and a serious subject. 
one um there's massive star wars mania lately as we were discussing um in the ad break and this film seems to be it seems at least apparently to be ca- trying to cash in on a lot of the classic imagery oh you like star wars everyone likes star wars let's throw some star wars imagery in there star wars imagery is so used but this one has a different approach right because jar jar binks is the main symbol of star wars fandom is, am I correct? Well, it was Jar Jar Binks the main Sith Lord. Let's not. But so in let's... Little Monsters, do we get to see a lot of beautiful Jar Jar imagery? I wish there'd be Jar Jar imagery in this film. I mean, I would have fi- been fine with more Star Wars imagery in this film because they're good in how they handle it. There's two excellent sequences involving Star Wars imagery, and they find novel ways to deploy it. Unfortunately, no. I'm sorry, I'm ruining the film, but Jar Jar Binks is not in it, Chris. So. Oh man. Well, it's still better than how the Dead Don't Die decided to use Star Wars. So that is true, except for the keyring. That was pretty funny. Um, lastly, on a serious subject. Uh, actually, I should treat it as a serious. It is a serious subject. Um, the, in the recent years, with regards to Australian cinema, there has been some controversy as to. I reportedly, I haven't seen the film, as to how allergic reactions are depicted on film. And certainly, um, so someone who had to carry an epinephrine around as a, uh, at a younger age, just like the, one of the main characters in this film, it's something that's not generally covered in movies. This, and for a zombies ridiculous gore fest of all things. Um, contains a serious allergic reaction. The film um, doesn't treat it for play it for comedy. It is faithful without much embellishment as to what would actually happen. And while it is used as a catalyst for some dramatic action, it isn't used for over the top or extraneous or or um, to 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 a gratuitous extent. And I appreciated that um, amidst a lot of ridiculous carnage, there was a considered and sensitive approach to a serious subject. And um, yeah, but and that's not and yeah, that does recommend the film as does so many other aspects. So yeah, I can't wait to discuss this more in coming months. I'm sure we'll have to. I mean, I'm I sure. It, I'm, what I mean to say is, I'm sure the film deserves that kind of discussion. And anyone else like? And uh, yeah. when it comes to yeah, we'll play some Taylor because it's Taylor is the theme music. I finally get to play Taylor on this show. My God. Okay. Uh, fair warning. How gory is the movie? Because it just it's will not depend. very gory. It's 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 jokey gory, mostly. Like, yeah, depends how much blood I'm supposed to see. No, you 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 won't you won't bother. If, I, like I remember, if you, if you can handle the fun. dead, don't die. You can handle this. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. okay, cool, cool. So that is the Melbourne National Film Festival. A couple of beheadings is okay. That's yeah. oh, more than a few beheadings. And All right, okay, you uh, you definitely missed no, all this movie. We, 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 okay. we, we, we're gonna be we're gonna you'll enjoy this film. I I actually can't wait to show it to friends and everyone. Ah, it's okay, you're a little monster. Okay. Oh, thank you, man. Um, so, perfect. This is actually a terrible segue to the next film, but anyway, we're going to segue to our spoilers discussion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is in cinemas now. It is, as you may have heard, the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. Um, warning, we are doing a full-on spoilers discussion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from here in you have been warned. Okay, so we discussed the film last week. Varad's going to give us his take, and he's going to give us his take in context of the entire film. Before we get into that, for those who aren't interested in seeing it, we described the film last week. It is about... Um, Rick Dalton, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, an aging TV cowboy who lives down the road from Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, played by Margot Robbie in this film, and uh, believes that he's a bit of a has-been and wants to reach greater career aspirations. Just to be clear, Sharon Tate is not play played Roman by Margot Robbie. Yeah. Margot Robbie does not play Polanski. <laughs> yes. Uh, very. I, I did notice that. I'm like, no, the audience is going to get it, but thank you. But, but I, I'm glad that was pointed out. Margot Robbie does not play Roman Polanski. Team, he's played by... No, it would be terrible casting. It would be terrible casting. No, that would be interesting. That would make this film more interesting than it was. That's the Surrey Hills Theatre version of this film. (laughs) Well, honestly, that would (laughs) be way more engaging than it actually was for me. And Brad Pitt plays Cliff Booth, Dalton's best and only friend. He's driver and stuntman. 
and uh, it recalls the era immediately preceding the horrific uh, Tate-LaBianca murders in Hollywood and the loss of innocence of Hollywood. What happens in the film, which we weren't able to discuss last week, is a few things uh, which we're going to elucidate on simply because it will form the basis of discussion. There is a sequence, a, a flashback sequence, where it is heavily implied but not clear as to whether Cliff Booth um, went on a boat with his wife, um, killed her. And obviously, in, 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 while he was cleared of any ch of charges, many in Hollywood believe that he is guilty of this offence and, um, tr and, and moderate the treatment of him accordingly. Um, there's a scene where he fights Bruce Lee, and they, go, they almost go for three rounds. Um, they each win one round, and they don't go into a third round. Bruce Lee is portrayed as a very arrogant and haughty figure in this. Um, there's a sequence where they visit the, Manson, the ranch with all the Manson disciples, and uh, Cliff Booth is, is finds uh, Bruce Stern, the owner of the ranch, has something to do with them, um, living with um, the, I forget her name, but the Dakota Fanning character who was jailed for um, attempting yeah. to assassinate President Gerald Ford. Uh, Cliff Booth attacks one of the uh, ranch hands on this ranch. And then at the end of the film, there's a sequence where um, three of the disciples intending to target Polanski and Robbie instead decide after having met Rick Dalton in the adjoining driveway to target Rick Dalton they go into Rick Dalton's house Cliff Booth is absolutely high um, in very gory and violent and graphic ways alongside his dog uh, proceeds to uh, what, what, what how, should, how should we put this um, Maul. he lights one Maul. he mauls um, he bat <laughs> yeah, and then Darth Maul. flames no yeah. no no he, she goes out into the pool and she's screaming, Rick and Dalton. Rick Dalton flames well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they die. So, what they do we die. think of the movie? <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, yeah, they die. The, the the disciples die. The dead don't die. Uh, whatever, people die. But okay, what did I think of the movie? <sighs> this is this is so. This this movie is interesting in different ways, but also equally frustrating for me to watch, mostly because I find it. I find it very hard to emotionally connect and feel nostalgic about the era that Tarantino wants us to feel nostalgic about. Uh, I wish uh, that I was, except I think apart from DiCaprio's very interesting aging star and very you know emotionally fragile portrayal of a, of a you know has been movie star, and I think he played played that really interestingly about how. Know, uh, how he just cries at every instant, which is pretty funny. Uh, it's not funny, it's sad. It is, it is sad, but also I think it's it both. is deliberately funny as well. Uh, where I think the movie's disparate structure is what probably held it back for me to actually understand. And maybe, and that's probably why Chris would like it as well, because it doesn't try to attempt to tell you any kind of linear story. And I am seeing Chris nodding because I think exactly the kind of thing Chris would yeah. appreciate in this movie, which I find it very hard to connect with. Uh, but also, I think the movie w does work best when it's trying to pontificate about, you know, what the era and culture it has been. I think there are a lot of guest appearances from famous actors, and they come around, and they do talk about the changing of the guard and changing of the times and what that means for cinema. But also, I think it is Tarantino's way of talking about uh, about himself. So it is almost a commentary about his generation of filmmakers and and how that's uh, a lost generation and how the way that you make movies now is pretty much altered beyond repair and the kind of movies that he's loved and the kind of generation of filmmakers that he's grown up with well, uh, is now forever lost. 
it, yeah, it's it's very much. I think he's drawing um, on this fifty years ago era as something analogous to the way that a lot Truth of people are feeling yeah. now that our time is coming to a close. Now yeah. it's the broader kind of thing about cinema, you know, the American film industry as it pertains to ideas of artistry, you know, that I think a lot of people are feeling pessimistic and thinking that's going away now with the increasing focus on franchises and um, the increasing corporatization of the studio system. But um, yeah, I, I think that as an, you know, those contemporary um, relevances were enough to draw me into the story because you were saying you don't have that much fondness for it to the the time period or that much knowledge i know basic facts about it but i'm not particularly nostalgic for that sort of thing either i um i don't have that much exposure to the kind of culture that tarantino is playing around with in this film but i still found it really transporting um just to see the level of detail in recreating the texture of the pop culture the graphic design radio ads trailers movies um, the notions of of movie starness or how heroes should present themselves on screen. Um, it's so obsessively detail-oriented that I found it transporting. I think I felt Tarantino's love for that time, even though I don't especially um, feel that love. But for me, that wasn't alienating. For me, that was, like, inviting. It is. And it's interesting in that sense also about how each of the characters, especially, let's say, Rick and Cliff, are both performing even when they're not performing in some sense. So I think this idea of the camera is never off. And I think it is definitely emblematic of a time when you were supposed to carry your image even off camera and the pressure of just uh, being a superstar and star in the studio system uh, was probably all-encompassing. And now we have, I think, uh, but also in terms of directors, and now we are moving to a generation where... uh, Tarantino and like that generation director Scorsese and we we talking about your last kind of bastion of of filmmakers being the actual stars mm-hmm. right and and now we're moving to a corporate studio driven well not just the, that but the studios are the stars but this movie is also very much about the idea of movie stars which yes. are also something that's going away and this two you know Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are two of the last people who I think fit the traditional model of a movie star in terms of three that including them I can think of three yeah also trying to like be self-referential and talk about direct this the last generation of directors being the real stars you know that uh I find it hard how to now sell a Hollywood movie beyond like a Quentin Tarantino film mm. sells the movie, right? We're seeing this because this is a ninth. He's become a brand, Tarantino yeah. I don't genre. I think there's a distinction here. Yeah. His films are treated as a genre, which is why many will go into this with certain expectations of a style. Now, I not, went. I yeah. my one of my, some of my issues with this was not so much that it wasn't like other Tarantino films, but that it wasn't as visually creative as Tarantino films. Having said that. Um, I don't think I don't think this is a film which harks back to a bygone era of when director stars. It doesn't really. Polanski's in it for what thirty seconds. It does have a huge amount of nostalgia when stars were ageless, as Norman Desmond would put it. And it's uh, as you like that it is starring one of the last great stars who can um, reckon with the image of this era. I would feel for Tarantino, and I think that's uh, for me that came across very fondly, is that for him the real stars are the directors, and I feel. 
what he's trying to say is that the star system is bound to fail if the directors are not given that kind of power. To be honest, Tarantino loves actors as well. Tarantino, when he was a kid, before he wanted to be a director, he wanted to be an actor because he until he understood what what a director does. And there's a reason why he keeps casting himself in all his films, despite being he doesn't in this one notably, but he's a terrible actor. Um, (laughs) I think he's really he loves actors. I think he's really attached to that idea of the actor. And this movie. is in a way that hasn't been in vogue in filmmaking for decades, really just about feeling, not just about, but one of the things it's about is feeling the pleasure of being in the presence of a star. Like the the stuff with um, Brad Pitt, just watching him driving around, chilling out, watching you know the little nuances in the way that he interacts with hitchhikers, um, the way he feeds his dog, the way, you know, a gratuitous shirtless scene where he's standing in the sun on a rooftop, yeah. the way that he sort of just effortlessly uh, can navigate any of the problems that face his way. Yeah, he's th- playing the real Steve McQueen in this. Damien Lewis was not good in this movie. And yeah. I, yeah, I for me, I, I found that this, in addition to the kind of texture of the pop culture I was talking about, I found these things were just really pleasurable to watch. And I think the length actually works to the film's favor here because... It's about relaxing with these characters so that you can look at the smaller details. Um, it, it, the performances are so layered and detailed. The production design. Um, I, I find this movie is just radiating these like golden Californian <laughs> vibes, sunshine vibes, you know. I, I would agree with you, except I felt uh, the tone was a bit misplaced and I would want it to be a more sprawling mess to kind of feel that kind of experience. It is actually, know. yeah, but a lot of people are saying this. sprawlingness there's of it, if Tarantino overindulged in that side of things, actually well, it would have helped, is what, what I could feel. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that this this movie is um, really like all over the place. There's no story, but it, it's long. It allows sections to really get played out, but there is actually quite a tight structure there in terms of, you know, at the beginning it sets out our characters with a problem, you see how it breaks up to show you how they deal with it along the way, and then there's a there's a climax at the end. It's it's a pretty traditional kind of story. It's just that um, the approach Tarantino's here, which when you were talking about his status as a brand and as a star, no other director would I can think of in Hollywood would, would be able to get a film like this made. Um, On this level, no. Yeah, very. Yeah, it, Scorsese could do it. Eastwood could do Scorsese, it. Scorsese, yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, a film that deviates so much from. Um, it, uh, like I was saying, in, in ways of, to, of character development and laying out the threads of its story, it is traditional, but it just takes on a different kind of feeling by allowing things to play out for so long as they do. Like instead of just having a scene where Rick Dalton stars in a TV pilot, he goes in doubting himself, but he regains a little bit of, of confidence in his career. We see that entire shoot play out and the movie becomes Tarantino's visualization of the pilot episode of the show. Um, I think that gives you so much more time to absorb the kind of texture of the 1960s mass pop culture stuff that Tarantino's trying to evoke. Um, it, I don't think it would be the same if he had just given us the Cliff Notes condensed down dramatic version. Um, I think that the sprawling, what could otherwise be self-indulgence, in, I think just serves the, um, the aims of the film and, and the subject matter. I think there's a tightness for what could have been a 100-minute movie. This goes um, significantly longer. It's 161 minutes. The 
opening sections establish a traditional plot and then you have about an hour and a half substantively which is i'm deliberately meandering and therefore i think it loses track of itself i think the audience can deliberately lose interest until the very end which is a piece of really flashy showmanship um with regards to how um it evokes this error it the I have been interested in this era of Hollywood. I've read a lot of books in it. I've seen a lot of films about it. But I don't think this goes beyond any of the many films which seek to emulate and create an idea of what classical Hollywood is. Um, certainly some of the best depictions thereof have occurred contemporaneously. I referenced the Weekly Sunset Boulevard earlier. Um, some of the modern depictions of Hollywood, as much as I didn't really enjoy much of La La Land for its musical bona fides, its depiction of what the Hollywood of today is like um, works very well. I think he's playing stronger. The problem is I feel Tarantino, and it's very clear in some of the uh, individuals and characters he picks out, um, not many people know who the Al Pacino character is, but he has a pride of place in the film. It's very inside baseball in that so many in Hollywood, this will appeal instinctively not just to people who, not necessarily people who know Hollywood, were read up on a lot of it, but who are ingrained in an active part of the industry. He's playing to the people in the code. It is about Hollywood. And that is what really issues to me. It's not, it's not playing to me. And I even I think... I may have a little bit more of an interest in this era than Brett Murrow, but still, I don't think that is necessarily relevant given that he's not playing to us. I Look, I could actually... Um, I, I said this last week, but for me, I think that Tarantino found the universals about it so that it didn't just um, work on the level of the specific. I'm thinking of... I mean, clearly he's looking at how this can be a metaphor for a lot of things because we've got the scene where Rick Dalton tells his... Uh, young co-star on the Lancer pilot shoot about this book he's reading about the, the scenes of the movie. Yeah, about this yeah. Bronco rider who's feeling like he's getting a little bit long in the tooth and feeling a little bit more useless every day. Um I think in the same way that, you know, the the plot of this film could be reflected in this Western book that um we as the audience can find a way into this story, even if you're not caught up in the inside baseball of Hollywood. Uh, I kind of feel there are two Two Tarantinos, which are caught up in this film, and I would have liked it more if Tarantino committed to one of those personas that he's trying to pursue. Like, like I think Glenn mentioned, you mentioned as well. Initially, it sets out a very conventional structure, and then towards the end, it has a very flashy Tarantino-esque, you know, surprise twist ending, uh, which is good. I, I like the ending, which, which, which is okay. But it'd be I good to discuss the ending actually. Yeah, yeah. When you, when I kind, of, I kind of felt on. like. Yep. Either if the film was that meandering philosophical, you know, meta take on that, I would have loved to watch that film, or I would have loved to watch the quintessential Tarantino movie, which it sets up in like the first opening minutes and then the climax, which is very Tarantino. Because suddenly I'm like, oh, so like he's trying to d kind of have its cake and eat it too. Like, you know, for most of the film, you're trying to really change my perspective of what you can do and actually trying to evoke a sensibility and trying to make me feel like it's an experience of trying to relive that era and then I kind of felt cheated by the end where I was trying to jolt it back into this Tarantino universe and be like oh I can still do this as well by the way which I'm like I that was the catharsis he was going for he was always going for that it was not cathartic I think I, I kind of felt cheated by that because I'm like you know let me belong to one universe because you've clearly done a lot of work in trying to show me that you can invest in that other side of the universe that you want me to be a part of but let me just be there then 
I'm super torn on this ending. Uh, to be honest, I, I'm usually torn on the... I was torn on the Inglorious Bastards ending as well, actually. Um, this this one functions in a little bit of a different way. Um, I, I think... I should clarify before you continue that. At the end, if for those who haven't seen it, um, in addition to what I said earlier, at the very end of the film, while Cliff Booth has been injured, Rick Dalton comes across the other residents in the home of Polanski and Margot Robbie, and they, f- and they f- hear, what's happened? Oh, come, we don't know you, neighbor. Come, into our house to drink and be merry and be a mm. part of our lives and so it ends on a very high note yeah um part of me is thinking okay tarantino we've seen the historical provision give the um characters their imagined cinematic revenge thing in inglorious bastards and Django unchained and um wouldn't it be more mature right now to just actually face up and and to the truth of the the history of the situation you're depicting but you can view this um, from another angle. Maybe Tarantino thinks it's it's more mature to make these kinds of narratives about events where we all know what really happened. So you can say, this is the movie. This is what movies do. You know, that maybe it's more honest to do it this way than to come up with a similarly outlandish fictional story in the 60s that sells the idea that something like this could ever have happened. This way about it. Instead, he's making more of a nostalgic point about the magic of the cinema. You know, that um, the once upon a time in the end is really um, with the bittersweet. Uh, I think it, it's a Morricone track that plays as the credits kick on. There really is the sense that he's saying, wouldn't it be nice if reality could be like this? And he's celebrating the power of the cinema to give people happy endings. And he, he's acknowledging it, it's not just a, a, a fantasy that he's selling you as something that could really happen. So there's an inherent kind of sadness in in what he's doing here, which is, even though I'm I'm kind of conflicted on it, it's still in that regard, one of the m- probably the most successful historical revisionistic ending he's he's given. All right, just on the before we get to the historical revisionism, um, the ensuing sequence itself um, was the preceding sequence. It's very entertaining. Um, it's very well staged. It's the only time he actually gets in the entire film, excepting to an extent the Bruce Lee sequence to really show Tarantino at his, you know, just violent. File best. Tarantino is an action good. director. Yeah, and in, it's the only action scene really in the whole movie, aside from the Bruce Lee scene, which is very statically shot. This was very good. On the matter of historical revisionism, can I, I can we talk just about the violence actually briefly? Ah, uh, yes. We will, actually, let's go, yeah, we'll come. We'll put a pin in historical revisionism. <laughs> yeah. Come back to that. Yeah. Um. Just with you mentioning him at his violent best. I mean, I'll I'll admit this. This um. I laughed when this sequence kicked in because the sudden the tonal whiplash Absolutely. from just um, the the tension to just suddenly this outrageous way over the top um, horrific violence being perpetrated by Cliff Booth, but I could see some people being like, genuinely horrified by it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's maybe it's, it's just not as extreme as anything. A lot of stuff in Django Unchained, or Pulp Fiction, or Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, um, but, I, I think... But it, it's, it, it is more intimate, the violence. The f- it, it yeah. was in many of the occasions in those films. It's, it's super gratuitous in the way that um, the wailing of some of the uh, Manson yeah, family yeah, the, characters just keeps on going. So you're realizing... kind of really does... Yeah, you're witnessing some like pretty extreme suffering and it's being played as a joke. And to an extent, like, is it, like it, that can go either way for people, I think. Yeah. I think Tarantino is just assuming, I think rightly in many cases, that people just not care what happens to yeah. Charles Manson disciples and is happy to see them... Go up in flames. Yeah, but I wonder so, if that's sort of like an excuse that allows him to indulge this this kind yeah, of sick also, impulse. I don't know. Also, also <laughs> just, just the visuals of like 
glass shards sticking out of the face. Like the, the mold yeah. face was... It's pretty heavy. Pretty, pretty Even yeah. Even if it's played in a kind of cartoony yeah. way. I, all this being said, and I love again, they were there to kill someone. So uh, well, his, uh, actions that were taken in that scene, some not all actions, but some actions, at least initially, were in self-defense. So it begins at a very different register to yeah. a scene, unlike in many of his other films, like The Hate for Later is a key example, which are just entirely gratuitously violent. But it kind of did make me feel like uh, the violence is a result of the absurdity of the situation to begin with. Yeah. Rather than a planned action, which is what happened. So the revisionist aspect is like, you know, it's this is less planned than people realize it. And it's but, the but absurdity it's not of how the things happen to line up. But he's not calling to the absurdity of the situation. The situation was was sadly real, and rem- and people like that exist um, very tragically. What he's commenting on is the absurdity of those figures and trying to marry the reaction with how loud and terrible they are. I look. I like that he's just mocking these people. I love um, Brad Pitt, Cliff Booth, just saying that the famous, you know, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. Line is just dumb. Um, I, I like that it's mocking these characters, but. Maybe it's just kind of like getting sick of Tarantino's quirks. And this was such a refreshing Tarantino film in being so unlike what his last few features have been like. Harkening back, I would say, to Jackie Brown um, in the way that it tries to create this good times vibe and let scenes play out for ages. Um, but it's, it just feels like such a disappointment to go back to um, the this kind of gratuitous violence for no reason, I think. Yeah. Like, I don't think he's not doing it for no reason. I think he's using it selectively. More selectively than he's used in any film. That's true. It is very much being done selectively, but it's so on brand. And even though, yes, he can pull off this kind of sequence well, you can make make fun of the Manson characters and you, and change history without necessarily <laughs> going into this kind of territory again. It could have gone. It could have had the initial mauling. And that could, it could have stopped Look, there. Honestly, you, they you could have been the talked you want, out of you, it. You wanted the non-Tarantino, not non-Tarantino. Maybe it you wanted the film that was distinct from his, his Uruf, essentially. Well, yeah, look, I would have been happy with that. But but seriously, they yeah. could have been talked out of it. Yeah, pretty much. It was a, it's a movie of conversations. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like uh, can you imagine uh, them being think, talked out of and just walking home? Yeah, I, I if you play it well enough, like the ending of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, And everyone kind of goes, and you know, they instead, you know, we can still have the high ending of like, you know, Cliff and like yeah. going with. But we're, we're talking about a different movie now. What we have movie. is this but, but explosion yeah. of movie-like violence. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting because I think the movie makes enough of a point to actually ridicule the Mansons without the gratuitousness. Yeah. you know, I'm not enough of that. Yeah, already, I, I'm. There. I'm not upset about this. These scenes, I, I oh, think yeah. they're well played off, and I love the movie. I just think it's like food for thought. Yeah, it's it's, but it totally did kind of. Sort of prick me is to like, uh, like you like this you again. People yeah, yeah. That's it. We're, we're get, we've seen Tarantino pull these kind of tricks a few times. People would have known it was a Tarantino film if that scene hadn't been included. I they know, could have but watched but it. We're not thinking of, it was Tarantino. To me, it's refreshing is the fact that he was trying to make a different kind of film in the middle, and then he lost that opportunity because he just m- couldn't commit to it. To me, a lot of the sides of Tarantino that I, lo- I love most are in this movie. The um, the long scene at the Spahn Ranch is such a tense potboiler, like something out of Inglorious mm. Bastards. I love the way that he just builds up. Builds it's up the it's very there. Hannibal Lecter Science Labs walk down to the jail cell. It's one of the best stage scenes in the whole film. And it's is very good. And the it, scene at the car where, where he just walks out and they're all just standing there staring at this outsider. What's Christ. great about that scene is um, Cliff, you know, while uh, Rick Dalton is going off being a Western star, there's the theme about how Cliff Booth does the real stuff. I think um, the hippie Manson girl played by. 
Margaret Qualley makes the comment that it's good you're a stuntman and not an actor because stuntman actors just lie. Stunt you you know you actually really do something. And the movie kind of shows that in a few ways. In the climax, it's Cliff Booth who you know fights yeah. off all the attackers, does most of the almost all the work, and it seems like Rick Dalton who's going to get the publicity. Yeah. But um, in this sequence, and, and we, he does get to walk off and like yeah, uh, walk into the, the sunset. Draw. Yeah. Um, in this sequence, we're cutting between Rick Dalton on the set of a Western, you know, and then Cliff Booth, who's actually in a Western. The you know the the space that's been used to film an old West town has is now becoming a place where an outsider stumbles into town, and the you know the the sheriff comes in, and the the villagers have a dark secret, and they're all hanging, you know, watching him, you know, from the, the side of the saloon. Oh, oh, it's marvelous! Like movies becoming and, and, real. It, it was really romantic when and marvelous to watch when Austin Butler was told about Cliff Booth being there and just turned on the horse and ran towards him and felt yeah, like, right, beautiful he's, shot. Hey, he's playing Elvis. Can't wait. Right, um, historical revisionism. Ah, there's, a, there's a right. There's a lot I like about this movie. Um, could can we talk about the question of okay? You you mentioned earlier the backstory about um, Cliff Booth's wife. I do want to get into that, but I want to talk about the historical revisionism okay. first because this is a completely distinct thing. So yeah. you referred to earlier to two other Tarantino films where he pulls this, but they're so different. And I actually think it's used best in this case. And this, it's used very differently three times. We're going to ruin the endings of Inglorious Bastards, the Ango Unchained now, if you've not seen these films. Inglorious Bastards, um, they kill Hitler, they kill a bunch of Nazi high command, and effectively bringing an end to World War II, and this is heavily implied much earlier. Um, this is very distinct from this film in that World War II ultimately did end with um, the Nazis being killed and the Allies and winning. Um, with Django Unchained, um, while, it's, while this exact event did Django. not... Did not occur. Um, versions of it did, and there are reports of like events occurring. It's not based on a particular event, maybe where it will be, but it's not explicitly so. This is changing the history of an event, which we know a very tragic event. And I talked earlier last week about how good Margot Robbie was with the smile on the side. And my favorite moment of her is her just smiling, and she wants to buy a ticket to her own movie. And it creates this portrait of what was lost and there's something incredibly poignant in him walking up to a very alive Sharon Tate and that, that and, and as much as Robbie's performance imparted um what was tragically gone what is tragically gone now what this world is without um that poignancy that it feels like such a happy ending but it's underlined by us knowing this is such an absurd portrait and inversion of what real life is that um envelops and grows what was a very good performance by Robbie, so I think it's used better in this. It's making the point that this is what movies are, you know, and and we wish that Margaret, you know, wish that life was like this. Yeah, and movies give us that, and it's yeah, it's giving um, Margaret, you know, Sharon Tate the the idea of Sharon Tate screen time again. Hmm. You know, it's it's his version of reversing the injustice. I, um, one of the things I do like for this film. Um, People have been debating, oh, you know, is Margot Robbie really a character in this? Is there enough of her? Um, Absolutely. I think there it's was, it's too. It's outrageous to suggest that uh, uh, any performer, least of all someone of her calibre, um, cannot evince a character absent lines uh, commensurate with those of her right. co-stars. Well, the question, I guess, would be of what Tarantino is going for in not giving her much dialogue. I think, honestly, that he he's treating her in a lot of ways as a symbol. Um, I think maybe also part of it... Is and that she's he, also aspirational, and I think yeah. that's what he's setting up to, right? Yeah. And it's aspirational 
she it's kind of because even for Rick and Cliff, she's you know once removed. She's she's still you know s- something beyond reach, much like yeah. real movie stars are for us. And right? I think also to Tarantino, maybe she is beyond reach a little bit as well. Like he doesn't give that many lines to many of the characters playing real historical figures no. in this film. They they get basically cameo appearances at most. Now, moving to the next subject, which is one of the most, if not the most controversial aspects of this film, which is the matter of um, the not only whether Cliff Booth did kill his wife, but the question that issues I would say Bruce Ray. Lee would be the <laughs> the most controversial aspect of this oh, film. Oh, okay. Actually, let's, let's, should we discuss that before we get into... Sure. So, Bruce, in the Bruce Lee sequence, um, Cliff Booth uh, n- nails him in one scene, in one, the first, in one of the rounds, Bruce Lee wins the other, there's never a third round. Bruce Lee is depicted as haughty and arrogant and his daughter among others have objected who knew him to object to this depiction tarantino has rejected this there are a few ways to look at this one is the perspective that hey it's a film it's a fictional movie people can be depicted their characters they depict whatever they want certainly moreover in this film um not only is this fictional but uh it the, the scene is couched in a recollection by cliff booth that is made very clear so unreliable narrator etc however i feel there is a distinction that really needs to be made here i think um there are some the way that tarantino's defended this is by saying of course cliff booth can do anything i say he can cliff booth is a fictional character um and i think there is kind of a meta touch to this earlier in the film when we think back to the the producer and scout played by al pacino saying that to introduce that a new guy is tough you show him beating the previous the guy who used to be the heroes so I think that's kind of playing out with the idea of Cliff Booth being able to take on the ultimate legend, Bruce Bruce Lee, to set us up for the idea that, as the old TV shows would with new actors, that this Cliff Booth guy is super tough. I think that's what Tarantino's going no, for. But also I think it's but, part, of, part of the meta-commentary where it's based on Cliff Booth's recollection, so you can never really trust it. I took the, I took it that this, even though this is Cliff Booth's recollection, that this is actually what really happened. I, I agree. I took, I took it that way too. Yeah. I took it literally. But... I think we need to make a distinction. I agree with Tarantino philosophically. <clears throat> hey, a director, a screenwriter wants to pick a character. They have license to do so. If you want to know what the character is like, read up on them. Maybe Bruce Lee was like this. Maybe it was faithful. Maybe it was completely wrong. I don't know. But there's a distinction with this particular movie because he depicts either people who are real, like Sharon Tate. I forget the name of the Al Pacino character, but he's a real person. He's a real famous agent. Or amalgams of characters, of, of famous real life famous people into one or few characters and amalgams of the Hollywood environment. I think with Tate, as we discussed earlier, he is putting her up as a, as, as a, even if exaggerated, still faithful version of what she was like in real life and therefore underlying the poignancy of her death. He does this with other characters too. I think if you're going to take that approach with your main real life character, it is fair to expect that audiences will interpret that you're taking a similar, not a similar approach to your other characters. With Bruce Lee, yes, it may be an exaggerated portrayal, but I think it's a reasonable interpretation that um, Tarantino is proffering or implying that this was very much what Bruce Lee was like. And maybe he was like that, but to the extent that Bruce Lee wasn't like that, I think that's unreasonable and unfair to Bruce Lee's legacy. I think a lot of criticism has come from the fact that you have only one Asian American, you know, major character that you absolutely the, the, because he's such an aspirational character in terms of Asian American people in pop culture, and, and that and he's being beaten by to, a white guy. So yeah. people view it as like another, just another. I don't think this is what Tarantino is intended. I think yeah. Tarantino is legitimately a huge Bruce Lee fan. Yeah, um, there've been tributes to Bruce Lee in, in a lot of his films, yeah. but um, 
yeah, I think people do view this as another way that the white Hollywood system yeah. takes down the Asian hero down a few pegs. And, and I think, yeah, I think so the kind of racial politics around it and representation politics kind of does murky the waters a little bit in terms of what how people would have wanted to have seen this play out. And I do kind of see the point if you are going to be consistent in portraying your major characters in a nostalgic sense, uh, there is a certain level of once removed uh, coldness to where Bruce Lee's portrayal, which is not afforded to any other sort of metafictional or real character, uh, you know, uh, certainly a bit more fun. Like, you know, it kind of does strike you as to like, oh, so if everyone in Hollywood is supposed to be aspirational, Bruce Lee doesn't come across as aspirational in any sense in this movie. So there is a level of kind of jarring thing if you are looking at those characters in kind of a conglomerate uh, collective sense. So I can see that point, but mostly it is about representation and, and what Bruce Lee's individual representation kind of stands out like a sticking sore thumb. And it's got to be said, Mike Moe was very good. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. actually a, a bang the on impression. Was really good. Yeah. yeah, the movie does give you the other side to Bruce Lee as well in the flash uh, cutaway we get when Margot Robbie is Sharon Tate's watching The Wrecking Crew and then suddenly we cut to Bruce Lee training her, which apparently is what actually happened yeah. um, to do the kung fu moves in in her film. So that, that was the Bruce Lee aspect of this. The next aspect is we want to discuss is the broad implications and the sequence itself where of the, of the sequence where um, it is heavily implied, not clear, that um, Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, may have or likely killed his wife. The sequence... Yeah, uh, the sequence takes place. Um, we're, we're told right before the sequence occurs that um, he that, that someone can't believe that Rick Dalton's friends with him because he killed his wife. He was cleared of any charges. Though it is widely understood in Hollywood, as we are led to believe that um, it is understood that Cliff Booth did this. There's a flashback sequence with Cliff Booth on a boat. The boat's rocking up and down. He's got a spear gun in his hand. His wife is um, arguing with him. And, but, yeah, and um, spear gun is pointed at her. And. Uh, he, this last scene is just him looking up at her holding the spear on the boat rocks a little and then we cut back to Cliff Booth in modern day um, I have a view on this I don't think people will debate whether Cliff Booth actually did it or not um, I don't think that's whether he did it or not is the point the filmmaker is trying to get across I don't I think I, I actually would not be surprised if Tarantino didn't have a view as to whether he did it or not I think the point he's trying to make is that Tarantino and a number of others have been caught up Oh, sorry, caught up strong, excuse me, have been implicated in the Me Too movement and its like. Um, certainly there's been a lot of publicity around containing uh, his alleged treatment of Uma Thurman on the set of Kill Bill, and notably this is the first film in a very long time that Quentin Tarantino is not made without Harvey Weinstein. Um, Tarantino may be very well be antithetical to some of the precepts of the Me Too movement, and certainly um, Cliff Booth is portrayed primarily in this film, we discussed the end at length, as a caring person who looks after those loved ones in his life and only reacts with violence when self in self-defense or when goaded by Bruce Lee. Though, as we said, he does go pretty overboard in terms of his violence at the, end of the end of the film. Yes, he does. But nonetheless, he is betrayed ultimately as a good figure and certainly potentially as an avatar for many of those who may feel critical of Me Too Moon or have been um, implicated or alleged to have committed um, acts themselves. I don't think Quentin uh, Tarantino is concerned as whether Cliff Booth did anything. I think he's concerned in that, I think he's making a more than implicit comment that in the absence of pr proof or a case, pr proof in the sense of um, 
a legal verdict that a person committed a crime that they should not that they you shouldn't, shouldn't be, be judged punished and maligned and um, it could be a view he holds and certainly it is not an apparent that this is a heavy heft to the criticism which is um, of Cliff Booth's character in his placement in the movie. I think potentially that is a still a point worth making, but the way this movie does it and the circumstances surrounding it mean that I can't help but view this as kind of smug. Like for a guy that has been, um, you know, at the very least guilty of, of, as he admitted to, you know, doing nothing when the um, to prevent Weinstein, you know, that he had knowledge... Um, and like most people, as and many, many people who won't admit to it as Tarantino did, I think, you know, stood by because they think, oh, this is just the system works. It's weird um, for someone so close to that situation to, in his immediate film following that, take it, do a kind of like, well, innocent until proven guilty it's message. It's like when Kevin Spacey put out the, that video of Ready Hearts of Cards. Yeah, video. it's almost like I'm making it so blatant in this movie, like, you can't catch me, like... Uh, that it's, not it's, to cast any aspersions on, on Tarantino. Level. No, it's yeah, not yeah. that. I, I I don't profess to know anything about, and I'm not saying anything about Tarantino himself. Yes. Um, but but it's so weird to um the way that this movie plays it so close to the line of whether this guy did it or not, and it, it like it um it's basically creating a, a situation where it, you could ease, you know, it, it, this isn't some vague thing. Like there's this mysterious thing, but he has a good alibi or whatever. It's pl- pl- the scene plays out. Like he, like yeah. this is a guy about to kill his wife. And Pretty it, much. and it, I think and that there is, to your interpretation yeah, deliberately. but I think there's a, um, what makes it ugly, regardless of what we're meant to believe, or if we're meant to believe anything about whether Cliff Booth did it or not, is that Tarantino almost seems to be going for laughs in that scene like isn't it funny that a guy shoots his wife because she's just being you know um dismissive of him and tearing him apart like it feels yeah. like that's meant to be funny and yeah. and then to get rid of. yeah exactly <laughs> but, but, and and if he is making that point isn't it then weird to just like unabashedly celebrate this character for the rest of it and say will you and um you know get to get you know tarantino gets to get away with that by saying well even though he gives the audience the satisfaction of like, ha ha, she, she got what's coming to her. But he says, you know, he keeps the character uncomplicated by saying, well, there's, you didn't see him do it. And it's very deliberate. There isn't proof. It's very de- well, I'm, The reason I mentioned the waves earlier is that it's very deliberate that the wave bounced when he looked up at her. And the last time we cut from Cliff Booth, it is heavily implied that it is a possibility. It might be an that accident. It might be an accident. I'm not, I'm not making a judgment either which way. Yeah, but... I'm, but I, I don't... Re- I, but, but I, even I, it, so, it, 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 that's, that's, yeah, that scene in her character and the possibility of murder is kind of being played for laughs, yeah. no matter which way it went. Did, would you agree with that? I, I, I don't disagree at all. My point with raising the issue of the waves is simply that he is deliberately trying to make it ambiguous to a degree while is still heavily implying it. It's very calculated yeah. to the end, you have said. It's, incredibly, it's, a, it's an incredibly calculated scene. It's very precise. Yeah. But also, I think... Points to a larger uh, character trait of Cliff. You know, he does kind of lose control whenever his authority is challenged, whether it is Bruce Lee doing that over yeah. his wife or, you know, towards the end. And you can see a pattern of behavior that Tarantino is trying to uh, establish, especially with his, oh, these are, you know. Right, he's a super, he's like the golden boy do, otherwise. Do, do gooder man babies who kind of. Yeah, man baby. 
who lose control when their authorities are challenged, essentially. Yeah, I think he's the ultimate man-man. I don't think he's meant to be a man-baby. Yeah, but I, I would call him a man-baby because he's not secure in his authority in terms of... But the thing is, his character is so secure and so confident in himself secure? in every other way. Yes. That, yeah. that the... Not secure in the sense when... He, 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 when that, that's all I'm talking about yeah. at all. Even when he loses his job, he still holds it together. Look, I'll, um, but that's I think part of the generational thing where you're supposed to meant to hold it together. But yeah, but yeah, but, but he does. He's he's, he's he's more the classic deal of classical Hollywood Steve McQueen cool than the Steve McQueen looked like wasn't that or try to be try want to be wasn't that movie coming out of um, the Hateful Eight where we had a lot of um, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to react to this kind of scenes of yeah. Jennifer Jason Leigh getting belted in the face yeah. and then ending this one also with a scene of. Um, yeah. of prolonged violence against women which yes is in self-defense but as we were talking about yeah he really relishes uh, not all of it was in self-defense yeah yes. that's right he really seems to relish in it and stretch it out um in at least in his, in his directing choices i think that in combination with the movie potentially you know trying to get you to forgive a guy for killing his wife is um going to make make people uncomfortable yeah it's the, uh, the optics are yeah it is the is there a misogynist streak coming f- closer to the forefront in tarantino's films should this be be read you know as misogynistic yeah the concluding line of my review was this for its stylistic purposes and these elements will alienate will, will endear as many people as will alienate mm-hmm. and i think this is going to alienate a lot of audiences it's, but the the timing of this is is interesting as well though right because this is basically a you're making a movie um, with that touches on the Me Too movement, which is about, wouldn't it be great if we could just go back to another age? It's kind of weird, right? An- another, yeah. Like uh, before those hippies yeah, took before, over Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> before we had to be politically correct. Yeah. You know, when men were just good and nice people, and you know. Before when when Dennis Hopper was was taking food out of the trash instead of becoming <laughs> a power player, and men were still men on TV. I, I think one of the reasons that. One of the calculated reasons that Tarantino more than likely included the final very violent scene was that one of the most infamous and awful acts of violence against a woman in Hollywood history, one of the most well-known, one of the most notorious, is, the sh- is Tarantino's murder. And he subverts a terrible act of violence against a woman um, and shows... act of violence and against a woman? Against mm-hmm. women, uh, w- women and yeah. a man, yes, who were, um, because, at least in the film, looking to commit that act he but wants to it's, subvert it's it so it's weird it's like she, she gets to survive because um the two the, the, because these yes. two macho men one of whom might have killed his wife <laughs> were there to stop it like yeah. it's, it gets into some weird territory but yeah, like if I cliff mean, booth killed his wife isn't it kind of weird to be like yeah yeah sharon tate got to get away because that guy who also kills women but it's okay because cliff booth got injured too yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, like, it's, know, it's very strange. The, yeah. is not it's, really it's discom- a, the whole film is yeah, discomforting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a subversion only in a minute sense because one act of violence against a woman is averted by an act of violence against another woman. The thing, the right? thing is, you could have replaced f- by a man, and it could have been like your point would be easily made. Even uh, though it would still be the point about violence, it still would have been using violence. Here's the thing: even though some of these things make me feel a little icky <laughs> to think about. That Tarantino is such a good director that he still kind of sells the fantasy. That you can still get swept up in the violence at the end and go, yeah, and go home happy. Yeah, Tarantino likes killing, you know, yep. uh, people. Oh, Tarantino. Yeah. Of course, uh, you had uh, to have uh, your. Very yeah, violent people. Your, you know, Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's got to be some blood spray or else the audience goes home unhappy. Um, but <laughs> Thank God it came to the end. You know, I was waiting for it. Where is this scene? A lot of people I've been talking about have said that. They're like, oh, it was kind of boring, but I really like the ending. 
Yeah, people go to a Tarantino movie because they know Django and Chained Glorious Bastards, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and Jackie Brown. Like it's yeah, and we've got death for Jackie, Jackie Brown. Less, okay. less Jackie Brown and less, less the, the, Brown. the film yeah. nerds. Yeah, I know it's a broadly seen movie, but less so than the others. It feels yeah, no, very much so. Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, this this yeah. it's yeah, it's weird. Um, I I enjoyed the rest of the stuff in the movie so much so that I just kind of forgive this ending and went along with it. But I think it's definitely good that we're talking about it. Yeah. I think it, it should because have a lot to unpack. I think that um, I don't want to get caught up in the whole, you know, like cancel culture. This movie's canceled thing, you know, because it has stuff things, I don't yeah. agree with. Um, I, I'm not saying that people shouldn't oppose things for um, on moral grounds. I'm just saying there's a lot that's great about this movie it's worth looking at the complete picture of it um but definitely it's good that we're talking about this stuff because um like i said before he's so confident as a director that he can just bowl you over with the sensation and and you just accept this kind of thing without picking it apart but i do think it is worth interrogating what messages this is meant to be is this really like a a conservative movement you know essentially story about like wishing that we could go back 50 years because there's a lot and it's I, I think he wants to go I think he's pinpointed the exact moment when Hollywood lost, lost its innocence and wants to hark back but, but as he time. sees it anyway but, but yeah the thing, right? I don't think Hollywood was ever innocent to begin with yeah there, I think there, that there'd been a lot of there was a lot of there was one scandal behind the time. scenes yeah. before this but I think but this is a very romantic vision that imagines yeah. Hollywood yeah. as being innocent prior to this moment it's much of a fable yeah once upon yeah it's myth more than it, it probably is a, a honest picture of Tarantino's feelings about about the period but at the same time you do get such a sense of love that there's a real affection for yeah there, a real affection yeah yeah so that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in cinemas now. The Melbourne International Film Festival is wrapped. Uh, the Korean Film Festival in Australia will be in S- Dendi Cinemas Opera Keys from tomorrow. If you're listening in Canberra, go have a look at, and I think it's at Palace Electric. And yeah, uh, we'll be back next week talking with Giselle Villego, the director of the Sydney Latin American Film Festival, which is kicking off at the Ocean in the Opera Keys, I think it is, and at the Anasura Picture House from September 4th through 21st. Um, yeah, um, have a wonderful night. Enjoy Tarantino if that's your thing. Enjoy. If it's not, that's fine. Just enjoy enjoy your kind of movies. Chris yeah. and I will be a year older and wiser. Yeah, yeah it's your birthdays. Oh wiser God. is questionable. Older is true. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you can get just one of those zombie viruses that age you back and just in Benjamin time. Button's disease. No, the, what's it called? Um, from Odd Family. Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I've forgotten. Um, yeah. I'm just Happy birthday! Sort of happy birthday to, to us! To happy, oh my god, the computer, 20s, which is horrible. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy. We survived. It, me. Yeah. Have a wonderful night. Bye bye. Bye bye. Love the movies.